Hi, this is Ikim. Hi, this is Katrina. Welcome to High Impact Coffee Hour, where you can listen to two psychology nerds chat with academics about philosophy, feminism, and science. Hi, everyone. My name is Katrina, and welcome back to another episode of High Impact Coffee Hour. Hi, this is Ikim. I am recording this podcast with Kat from my hotel quarantine in China, so that's dope. Very nice. And hi, everyone. I'm Cass. Uh, you might know me as the host of Clinically Psyched podcast. Uh, right now, I am in Canada, and uh, I am a researcher and clinical psych hopeful in the area of sexual psychology. Yeah, just hearing that is incredible. And if y'all have not heard Cass's podcast, please check it out. We are going to link it below. And it is just such an incredibly helpful tool, even if you're not applying towards clinical psychology programs, just psychology as a whole is it's incredible. So please check it out. Now, going on to your research interests, you mentioned that you are interested in uh, sexual psychology. So could you talk a bit more about what that entails? Oh, definitely. So sex psych is not the newest uh, psychology topic, but certainly underdeveloped. Um, so my kind of niche within that is I like looking at uh, sexual pain disorders. So you might hear of vaginismus, GPPD, vulvodynia. Um, so kind of, yeah, pain disorders that have to do, you know, not, not just with sex, but with um, routine exams and things like that. So, so it definitely impacts so much of a person's life. In addition, I'm really interested in how like culture impacts our sexual scripts and kind of influences our expectations for sex, what makes sex good, how can we make it better, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So I, I definitely find it to be a really kind of interesting and kind of wild frontier of psychology, if you will. Um, you mentioned sexual scripts. Could you tell us a little more about what they are? Oh, absolutely. So um, everyone kind of has an idea in their head, whether they, you know, got sex ed or a sex talk from their parent or had, you know, sexual experiences themselves of how sex is supposed to look. Uh, and so typically in kind of the West, you you see it as, you know, there might be some kissing, some foreplay, um, maybe some, you know, oral hands and then penetrative sex. And then both people are supposed to have an orgasm. And that's, you know, kind of the cultural zeitgeist of what sex on TV looks like, right? Um, however, if you're somebody perhaps who has a physical disability, or perhaps you're one of, you know, the many, many women who don't experience orgasm via penetration, that's when, you know, the, the, the sexual script that's so ingrained in us kind of gets pushed off kilter. And we, in order to kind of combat that and make, and make, make sex good and exciting and pleasurable for everyone, I'm really interested in kind of changing those scripts a little bit. You know, does sex always have to end in orgasm? Or perhaps is it okay to just have, you know, pleasure? for pleasure's sake. And, and that's, you know, that's it. And that's what makes 
sex good. So, so yeah, I, I'm really interested in kind of how we view sex and how that makes us view ourselves in sexual situations and how that can either make sex great or can make us disappointed. Um, I kind of am really interested in how you think we view ourselves. Uh, sorry, we view, uh, cannot talk, haven't had my coffee. I'm interested <laughs> in knowing like um, how you think we view ourselves through the lens of our sexual relationships. Um, could you tell us a little more about that? Like, for example, does it impact our self-esteem or our um, other aspects of our identity, et cetera? Yeah, so I think, I think absolutely. I think it impacts us in a way that a lot of us are even afraid to talk about because sex is such a, a taboo thing. But, you know, you see effects like um, the spectatoring effect, which is where somebody is only thinking about how they look to the other person during a sexual encounter. And if you're not, you know, in your body, if you're not, you know, opening yourself up to pleasure without the fear of being judged, that can really affect how satisfying sex is for you, which can then make you start questioning, you know, does my partner like me? Is there something wrong with me? I'm not able to orgasm this way. I'm the problem. And, you know, that can really make somebody feel, you know, unattractive or unlovable or, you know, so, so many of these things, sex, you know, it doesn't have to make up a huge part of people's lives. Um, definitely, it's, it's your choice as to whether or not you like sex, like to engage in it. But for the people that do, um, not being able to perform can totally be, you know, a huge self-esteem killer you see how many viagra ads on tv right you know big strong big man with a big you know what and you know this is kind of how we build up what masculinities or femininities or you know ideas of how people of certain genders and gender experiences are supposed to perform so not being able to meet those goals can be devastating to somebody no definitely and even just the mention of viagra and how it seems like so much of the message in culture is directed towards male uh, pleasure or male experiences. And a lot of it completely disregards uh, women experiences and just even the fact that so much of the contraceptives for women presents with so many different uh, health issues that could later lead to life, what's it called, life-threatening um, issues that really get glossed over and isn't really prioritized in research. And we've had so much time now to really perfect something for women uh, or people with uteruses to make sure that they don't experience as much pain or as many issues. Um, so it's just really interesting to also view it through that lens. Oh, 100%. There is definitely, uh, definitely a gap in terms of the literature you know, even on female pleasure, like, you know, even that, that the female orgasm is something that happens and can happen regularly for women. Like we are so behind on, on all of that, but we definitely know what makes, you know, certain men happy in a sexual relationship, I guess. I'm trying to make it as PG <laughs> as possible, but, you know, let's even look at Viagra as, um, as an example. So, Viagra, one of the things they found was that it's actually amazing for period cramps. 
So Viagra is wonderful as a pain relief tool for menstruating people, but that wasn't deemed as profitable as, you know, penile enhancement and therefore the marketing and research for that was kind of just cut. And so, you know, here's this, this whole thing of like, like almost the primo example of, you know, male bodies being prioritized over female bodies and especially female pain. Um, it's, it's totally interesting. And the idea that women are usually in charge of contraceptives is also very, that's another social script, right? That's very um, ingrained in us. Uh, and, you know, it can be very invasive. IUDs are done without any kind of anesthesia usually. Um, and that's, you know, almost just as invasive as a vasectomy. And yet one is so much more commonplace for young people than the other. And, you know, both can presumably for a lot of people be reversed. And yet people with uteruses are the ones who have to bear that pain and bear it without any kind of anesthetic. So absolutely, there is, there's a huge gap and we are so behind in gynecology and all of it. Uh, healthcare and reproductive healthcare is obscene <laughs> without a different word. Yeah, I think we definitely can all agree that um, these like sexual scripts are shaped by culture and, you know, they probably also reinforce these gender relationships and gender norms as well. But I'm also like, it just strikes me as so interesting that we associate what it means to be good at sex for men with components of masculinity as well. So I'm just curious, um, I mean, to what extent can we really say that this is about male sexual pleasure when really we're just reinforcing all the stereotypes mm. associated with what it means to be a man? Right. Do you, do you think that there's a relationship there or do you think we're um, I guess what I'm trying to understand is, do you think there are misunderstandings we have as well about male sexual pleasure as well? So we definitely have misunderstandings about male sexual pleasure. And one of the, the, the one of the key things you can think about is that there's a spot on the male body made for pleasure. That's the equivalent of, you know, a female G spot and it happens to be in the rectum and not a ton of men talk openly about enjoying this kind of pleasure and there's this kind of almost demasculated uh, idea of being you know penetrated and then that is you know emasculating uh when you know for some it, it could be a very pleasurable thing and if that was something that was normalized I think a lot more uh people with that reproductive anatomy would enjoy it. And um, it seems almost silly that it's, you know, it's associated with perhaps different sexual identities um, and even like the idea that it's, it's considered in certain circles of kink to be a very like, you know, submissive role, but it, it's, a, it's a part of a body that experiences pleasure like many other things. And so this idea that even men have to climax a certain way is is very you know indicative of there's so much more we could be doing there's so many men experience sexual pleasure in many different ways uh but what do we talk about you know it's that that moment of ejaculation and that's it and you know there's this misconception and i love breaking this misconception 
men um, also in, in many studies have shown that they also enjoy like sensual foreplay. Um, and when that's introduced, it can have many positive effects on that sexual experience and be more satisfying. But not a lot of men will talk about, you know, I like to be spooned and I like to cuddle and have gentle touches and light candles. You know, we, we, we just don't put sensuality and masculinity together when that's just enjoyable, like full stop for some people. Um, and I just wanted to highlight that I think this further, um, you know, demonstrates how heteronormativity is such a huge part of these cultural sexual scripts and how like we peg, like there's this huge aspect of toxic masculinity that is just founded on a on this homophobia um, and not just homophobia, but just in general, the antagonization of um, the queer community. Oh, abs absolutely, absolutely. And that is like, unfortunately baked into so many aspects of our culture you can't really you can't really look too many places and, and not see the impact of like heteronormativity um so 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 absolutely and i think what's what's so unfortunate is not only does it you know stigmatize and dehumanize a group of people but it's also like you're sacrificing pleasure to yourself to do that to other people you know, like you could be having enjoyable sex that works in different ways that maybe have associations with different communities, but you'd prefer to, you know, degrade these these acts that you might enjoy. So it, it's like you lose on both fronts, you know? <laughs> that is really so well said. And it just reminds me, like you said, it's so baked into our society, especially in media representations of relationships as well. Um, and how a lot of the times vulnerability in men is, is played for laughs um, in TV shows and movies and even songs in some cases. There's a really great YouTube channel called Pop Culture Detective that we'll also link below that sort of goes through and is a sort, sort of like a media critic to different um, movies and TV shows and showing how masculinity and toxic masculinity is presented in certain ways that is extremely harmful yeah, I was wondering, um, have you seen the TV show Succession? Because I feel like that's really relevant to our topic yes. today. <laughs> Cass, have you seen it? Unfortunately, it is on my list. But being in Canada, it is so hard to find certain TV shows to watch. <laughs> and Succession is one of those ones I haven't tracked down yet and may oh. have to find a nefarious way to watch it. Yeah, but I think it's just one of um, the many examples of TV shows where they really use a lot of sexual language and the way they use it is like evidently they use sex as a means to dominate others, to establish this hierarchy, to exert influence. So like they use sexual language in every day, um, just like dealing with colleagues at workplaces and professional settings. Um, there's, you know, definitely, I, I think that's so interesting to me how, again, we use sex as a way to exert power as well. I think the showrunners do that in a very explicit and uh, meaningful way to show how sexualized we we make our daily speak and how violent we also um, are in our language and how a lot of the times violence and sex are like very, I don't know, put together. And I even this reminds me of how in media people prefer to show scenes of violence versus scenes of Sex, and I've always wondered about that too, about why that is the case and why violence is allowed to be shown. But then when it comes to sex or even 
emotions or vulnerability, especially in non-heteronormative um, relationships. Yeah, no, you you see a lot more violence on TV than like just you know healthy sexual encounters. I mean, when's the last time you saw a woman orgasm on TV? Or, you know, you saw some really great queer sex that wasn't, you know, over sensual, oh, sorry, like uh, sensationalized or, or, or made taboo in, in some way. Um, when like a lot of, you know, if you're here, your parents probably had sex. People have sex. It's, it's just such a part of daily life and it can be wholesome and good and you know, bonding. It could also just be fun. It could just be, you know, you can just have, have pleasure. And why, why do we look at that as such a, a horrible thing when we're all, or most of us are, are, are perhaps interested in it. So, so yeah. And I think, you know, that whole, like we use, we use sexual language to dominate and kind of the, the, the whole idea of like, gender and their their places between domination and submission and sex and and what does it mean to be submissive during sex is that really like you know the quote-unquote feminine role um it's it's all it's also interesting and it really shows you how much it's it's like baked into everything right you know the language on tv the way we talk to our peers it's it's yeah no a hundred percent actually when you said have you seen a show I thought you guys were gonna say sex education (laughs) on Netflix um I don't know if your audience if anyone's seen it but um basically what the mom does on sex education that is like I want to be here (laughs) that's so great that you brought that up because I think that that's such a like very rare example of positive sex experiences and being shown on TV um, and how popular it is now. So I'm really hoping that more and more people watch it. Ikim, have you seen it? No, I haven't. But could you tell me more about what makes it healthy? I'm very curious. I I might actually watch it. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, So there, like any show, there are some things that you look at, especially if you, you know, when you're not an expert, but when you've done any kind of research in any area and you kind of get that background and you watch something that's supposed to be about mental health or whatever, and you kind of just go, okay, well, I wouldn't have said that exactly. I had a couple moments like that. But what I really like is that they discuss things that I have never seen talked about on TV. And it's with young people who are really going through that time in their lives where they're exploring and trying and you know, one of the characters, I hope this isn't a huge spoiler, but one of the characters uh, experiences uh, vaginismus. And like that was, I remember watching that episode and being so mind blown that we're like seeing it on TV, like a wide audience is going to know what this is. And maybe there'll be a girl who didn't know what was going on with her body and shamed herself for it. Who's watching this and going, oh, that, that's a problem. And, and there are therapies that if I wanted, I could do. And, you know, they talk on TV about using dilators for vaginismus. And this is like, that is what you would do. And, and it's just so cool to see like actual real sex therapy. I was going to say, if you wanted to describe what vaginismus is exactly, because I know that you brought it up and some people may not know exactly what it is, um, just as a caveat. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, So vaginismus is a disorder 
where somebody uh, who has a vulva and a vagina, um, they will experience pain or will be totally unable to receive any type of penetration. Um, this can also be accompanied by anxiety, fear, dread, um, kind of a myriad of, of other psychological uh, impacts from, from that. Uh, so it, it, it impacts not just sex, obviously, um, any type of, of penetration, fingers, uh, toys, anything like that, but it can also impact getting cervical exams or uh, there's actually some really interesting research right now happening on uh, giving birth when you have a vaginismus. Cause like, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine how stressful it might be being a pregnant woman who, who might have to, to give birth vaginally. So it impacts, it impacts a ton of women. Um, we don't know exactly because again, it's not something that people regularly disclose uh, even to uh, primary care physicians. So it just occurred to me that, you know, like maybe in American culture, there's this, it's, you know, more of a silence and taboo surrounding um, sex education, um, especially like how it is discussed within the family context. I was wondering if you might know something about that. So I couldn't give you exact figures, unfortunately. Um, and, and with a lot of these kind of sexual health things, we any figures we have are kind of very approximate because a lot of people don't like talking about sex. And a lot of the people we want to hear about are the people who are uncomfortable with sex and wouldn't, you know, participate in our studies either way. Um, so it's, it's difficult. I do know that there are vast cultural differences when it comes to how open people are in um, talking about sexual matters with their children or with relatives. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of examples of small communities in rural areas where, you know, adults wouldn't be able to tell you how pregnancy works and how to get pregnant. It just happens and things like that. Um, and then you have more, you know, open cultures or you have cultures where nudity isn't sexualized and it's totally normal to be nude. So what bodies look like is, you know, um, kind of understood from a very young age. I do know that obviously we have the statistics that, that when kids get the education to have sex uh, in a safe way rather than stay abstinent or just told it's dangerous, don't do it. Uh, they end up with less STIs, less pregnancies, unwanted pregnancies, I should say. And so uh, education is so empowering and education and having that talk. And, you know, if you're a parent who maybe isn't as comfortable talking about sex with your kids, make sure they're getting that education somewhere, you know, like there are fabulous books you can buy uh, out there about sexuality that are kind of made for younger audiences. We have so many resources. Um, I'd also like, if your kid is in sex ed at school, just take a peek at what they're learning. And if it isn't in detail, or if it's like an abstinence only kind of course, you can try to maybe fill in some of those gaps. Uh, definitely being open to questions from your kids and answering at an age appropriate way um, is, is so important. I, I'm very biased because I grew up with a single mom and we just had this almost like Gilmore Girls <laughs> relationship where we talked about everything and anything. And it was, you know, super feminist, pro-choice, like 
you should explore your body <laughs> type that's of thing incredible. but I know I know not everyone has that so oh yeah I was gonna say that's really <laughs> incredible that um you were able to have that open and honest conversation and I think that that's so important especially in the school system I don't think I've ever met anyone who's told me that they've had a positive sex education in the United States at least and even I think in other countries I grew up in the Middle East and that was never even discussed with us at all. So um, it's definitely important to make it so that everyone has all of the information so that we're not um, working from a point of fear rather than a point of like empowerment and just making sure that people have all the information so that they can make choices. And so that's not like we're controlling people into this certain way of living, but it's, yeah, it's definitely such a challenge and I don't know how that's going to change. I mean, I definitely think the U.S. Um, like culture surrounding sex ed is very much also about like how it was founded. Because um, I, I did move to Europe for a part of my college and also a part of my high school. And I just it just occurred to me that people were a lot more open or parents were a lot more open about their children having sex. And they were a lot more open about like their children having their partners over. Um, it was not really a big deal at all. Whereas in the US, you know, I went to a Catholic high school and this was very much this very inhibited topic. People were not allowed to discuss it. And you definitely were not allowed to bring your partners over. Um, and I actually had a high school biology teacher who gave us um, this very comprehensive sex ed. So she showed us all the you know, female contraceptives. Um, she passed around birth control pills so that we knew how it worked. And she explained to us how, the, you know, how our hormones are impacted and how a pregnancy works. And she also told us that she might get in trouble for teaching us those things because some parents would not be happy with the fact that she was talking about sex to high schoolers because they believed that it would encourage um, the lack of abstinence, which is very interesting to me. Um, and I did think about it quite a bit. And I wonder how much of this is because of, you know, just the fact that a lot of fundamental Christians migrated from Europe to the US um, and that there's that's such a huge part of the American culture, right? I don't know if Kat can comment on that because you're like the American here. I think despite what we claim to be very um, separated between church and state, I think that it's still very intertwined in the United States. And so I think that that helps govern a lot of the policies, including sex education and making sure that it's operated from a point of fear rather than a point of like information and spreading as much awareness on certain issues or on just asking questions in general. Yeah. What is it like in um, Canada? Do you, do you feel like in does that happen in Canada or no? So funny enough, the U.S., at least on paper, has more division between church and state than Canada does. However, in practice, <laughs> Canada is a little bit uh, better in, than the U.S. in that way. You know, abortion is very, 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 like, accepted here. Um, it's rarely up for any kind of bills or anything like that. So so we do have some separation. We do have publicly funded Catholic schools, though, and that's a remnant of a very old England versus France territorial, God knows what, right? Canada is <laughs> an old country with uh, a storied history that I'm sure is, is at least a little bit similar to the States. Um, we do tend to be a little bit more liberal in general. Uh, obviously, we have um, a little bit more comprehensive healthcare and things like that. But 
when it comes to kind of cultural zeitgeist of of sex i mean we are definitely like a land of immigrants so we have all kinds of cultures and viewpoints and you know at least the city that i live in is very very multicultural and you know you're not going to find two opinions <laughs> that are the exact same on on this topic so it's a little bit hard to say there's like a monolithic culture here in the same way i mean definitely there are areas in canada that are like predominantly white catholic and you're going to get a lot of that kind of perhaps some misinformation some guarding of information but i think i'm lucky in that growing up at least i i definitely always had a diversity of opinion and uh with a very open family kind of kind of learn stuff yeah so now we can sort of um cut into how you got interested in this topic to begin with and what your journey has been like throughout that process with you getting more involved in certain research or what made you want to pursue this definitely well my mom was a huge inspiration to me because she was just this very strong jewish single mom and just she represented like so much of what I wanted to become, which was like her. And she was very open about this type of thing. So growing up in the household, it was something I talked about just like anything else. You know, if I had a question, I'd ask it. She'd give me, you know, the most detailed answer she could. <laughs> and um, there's actually a really funny story where um, I came home one day and I must have been in grade four. And I had heard on the playground, someone said 69ing. And I, I went up to my mom and I said, you know, mom, what, what is 69ing? And she said, uh, you know what? We're not ready to talk about that just yet, but it's something like older people do. So I was like, okay, got it. So I called my grandma. She was an older person. <laughs> and <laughs> I heard grandma, do you and grandpa 69? I heard it's something old people do. And my grandma, who who my like my mom and my grandma are very cool, roll with the punches kind of people. And my grandma was like, "Honey, I wish." <laughs> you can't hear Egan laughing but we are both laughing hysterically in the background. That is so fantastic! Oh my gosh, I want to grow up in this household now. <laughs> oh yeah, so, so so my childhood was very much like that, and then I kind of got into the more psychology part of it just kind of starting off with a general interest in psychology and what makes people do the things and that they do and why and um started watching you know every tv show that had like therapy or psychology is like at the forefront of it um i think many of us got into criminal minds along the way and thought okay this is so interesting like like you know the fringes of what what you know psychology can be or i guess like like the more interesting unique cases of psychology like that's so cool and it kind of just went from there there's also a very famous uh sexual ed educator named dr ruth and i used to watch her tv show and she was like this little old woman and people would call in with sex questions and she like used to be a nurse and she would you know give you the answers and I was just so enthralled by this so enthralled and um when I got to university I met my who would then become my thesis supervisor uh who taught human sexuality and I took the course because you know sexuality has always been something I've been very interested in and 
I, I was like, wait, this is a field? Like, like this is, I could study this type of thing for the rest of my life. Like, are you joking? That's so, that's so cool. And uh, she, she was a huge like supporter and she took me on to do my thesis and like, it was love at first sight after that. <laughs> that's awesome. What was your thesis about out of curiosity? So mine was about mindfulness and sensations of genital arousal. So Ooh. kind of how mindfulness can affect uh how how strongly we interpret our own genital arousal to be as well as our experiences of the idea of sexual arousal in general so you know genital arousal and the overall feelings of arousal can be the same or different um that's called concordance so you know your genitals can be really aroused but maybe you're not and that's you might get like persistent general arousal disorder in that case. So like, that's kind of, yeah, that was kind of the area. Could you tell us what you found? Yes. So what I will tell you was that um, I did not have the budget to do as intensive a mindfulness intervention as I had hoped. So unfortunately for my thesis, my little undergraduate thesis, we, we did not, uh, we failed to reject that null hypothesis for sure. But uh, there are, you know, Dr. Lori Brado is a psychologist who specifically studies mindfulness and arousal. And she has found that, you know, it, it can help us uh, experience, you know, more arousal or the level of arousal that we want to be having so it's yeah it's it's it should have made an impact but unfortunately i did not i my mind was you know grasping greater than my research budget could that's why it's going to happen in the future and you're going to come out with these fantastic results i mean it's so difficult for undergraduate thesis is like there's never the budget or or the plan for actually going through with the bigger picture of things but we will we will find the results of that soon. I mean, I hope. Yeah, so. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Even your PhD, it's like real data is so like messy, mm. and you always you always it's never a straightforward relationship of like you hypothesize these two variables and then you immediately find the results on your first day at work. Um, I will admit that I did think that was going to be the case when I started my PhD. It is not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I do have to get there first. Um, so my my podcast that I that I do is actually information to help people apply to psychology, clinical psychology. Uh, there are some episodes that just fit for grad school in general, but um, yeah. So so have to have to get in first. Fingers crossed for this year for sure. And it's so great that you're sharing this information with so many people who don't have access to this information because no one's ever told about what the expectations are, what you need to do in order to prepare, what your application's supposed to look like, what even like sort of language you have to do. So it really is like people are speaking a whole different uh, dialect that you were never accustomed to. And now you have to learn in a matter of months or even less than that um and so i think what your podcast does is really teach people and give people those tools um which is so important because people should really adopt that mindset of being collaborative and making sure that other people are getting the things that they need in order to succeed because you want to see people who are like you who can be represented in this sort of field so that we can actually move it forward into the sort of picture ideal way that we want to see it yeah 
I mean, clinical psych is so unique when it comes to grad programs in that you don't really know what you're dealing with until you actually try to apply. Unless of course you've had great mentorship or you have a parent who's in academia, but how many of us have had that? That's, you know, that's a privilege that uh, very few get. And so, <clears throat> sorry, you find out things like it's a one to 7% acceptance rate. It's harder than medical school. It's harder than law school. And those are big, scary statistics that, you know, can really fluster you. And then you find out there are expectations on you, this kind of hidden curriculum that you would have never known unless somebody told you. So, you know, applying for grants before you apply to a master's PhD program looks great on your CV. Okay. No one told me that was a must. It's never listed in the, you know, things you need to apply to the school or this many years of experience in this type of lab, doing this type of work, publications, uh, presentations, going to conferences. There are very, very few graduate school programs that expect you to have that coming out of undergrad. <laughs> and clinical psych is one of those things. And it's the type of thing where you can be a great student. You can have an amazing GPA, but it's just, it, it's just not the year that you get in because maybe nobody who studies what you want to study is accepting students, or perhaps there was something on your application letter, you, you didn't get it re read over, and maybe you mentioned things like wanting to go into clinical practice, which is like apparently a huge no-no in going to clinical psych because they want you know, research-focused students. And, and so there are, there are just so many of these little rules. And when I started my podcast, I had been rejected from like every school. And that was like the third year that I had been rejected from every school I applied to. And I was so frustrated and I kept seeing people on Twitter talk about acceptances and interviews and, and all these great things happening in their lives. And I was like, you know, what? I feel like shit. <laughs> I feel like shit. And I, there's nobody out there who like is talking about what I'm going through. So I just, yeah, I kind of hit record one day and ranted and that's what became clinically psyched. Yeah, I absolutely agree on the um, importance of mentorship part, even though like part of me feels like that's kind of wrong because I kind of wish that the system would just put out all the necessary information that we actually need. You know, like it doesn't even have to be a checklist of do these things. And at this timeline, it can just be, for example, stop calling it a personal statement um, when really they want to know about your research background. And also like for PIs to put out, for example, a lab document um, detailing, okay, if you want to apply to my lab, these are the things that I expect from you, and these are the ongoing projects, and these are the things that I would need to get done, for example. Um, I definitely found it a really um, convoluted process myself as well when I was applying, even though I wasn't even applying to clinical psychology programs. I had worked in a clinical psychology lab in my undergrad, and through that lab experience, I realized that I wanted to, my interests were more socially oriented, which is how I started applying to experimental and social psychology programs. And even then, when I was applying, there was so much that I just didn't know, and it felt like I was in this murky you know, I was in murky waters. I just didn't know where I was headed. I also didn't have a backup plan. So, you know, it could have totally not panned out and I would have been unemployed at home for a while during the pandemic. Um, but, you know, like 
then I got in and now that like I'm in my second year looking back on my experiences of the application I was like yeah actually now that I got in and I've been working this lab for a while I feel like if I were to reapply there were so many things that I would have done so much better so much more efficiently I would have known where to allocate my time better I, I, I would have known for example to read up on you know all the previous literature of the people I was applying to and I would have known that instead of applying to 10 programs you know, spanning just like putting my web out there um, and like eight out of those 10 programs, I applied totally last minute as in like two weeks before the apps were due um, just because I was panicking. I was like, oh my God, I don't have a backup plan. I got to apply to as many as possible. No, actually I, I would have applied to just, you know, maybe three to four, three to five top programs that I really, really knew I wanted to get in. And I would have been happy working on that topic for a, a couple of my years. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where if I were to look back retrospectively, I knew the things that I could have done better. But at the time, I really didn't know. And I have to say that I also even had, you know, professors who were willing to help me. I had, you know, my department head, um, you know, who were who was willing to talk to me through the process and to tell me, for example, how to package myself, to revise my personal statement, etc. And I can genuinely say that without that kind of mentorship, I would not have gotten in because I just would not have known at all. Yeah, I think, you know, your, your story is one that I hear so many times of, you know, if, if I hadn't had that one person tell me that one thing, I, I never would have gotten that information anywhere else. And that's, that's so unfortunate. I know that it's really hard right now to get RA positions in labs because labs are kind of not doing as much research. Things are slowing down during the pandemic. And like my RA ships were where I got the bulk of my infamous. So I feel so, I feel so bad for, for people who are going through that now, um, which is another reason. Yeah. I'm like, let me pump out this information <laughs> to as many people as possible. And I, you know, was saying previously that um, I had somebody tell me like, why are you sharing this information with your composition? And it's, that is just that old vanguard of psychology that, that, you know, I look at people like you guys who are so kind and, you know, really interested in sharing ideas and talking and be that kind of collaborative spirit and you see some professors or psychologists and you're like, why are you in this field? Like, you know, the, the psychology is about mental health or, you know, mental wellness as a discipline, especially in clinical psych. Unfortunately, I, I haven't had as much experience in like social and experimental, but in clinical psych, it is cutthroat. It is really cutthroat. And I've had supervisors throw me under the bus and purposefully sabotage my applications and like all other kinds of just mean-spirited things and it, it's just this it's this old vanguard of be cutthroat be competitive be the best and I'm like I just want good people doing good science who want to help people in this field and if I can help them get there good <laughs> you know they're going to be the ones the next generation changing it's so that people like me don't feel as, you know, put off or alienated by it. Exactly. You want the kinds of people who are going to go into this process with such a collaborative spirit so that you can, they can ensure that other people are also getting put into these positions 
so that it's an easy, accessible, transparent process for people. And it isn't this murky water situation where you're kind of feeling through the water for like daggers or palms or things that are just going to go off at any second, because so much of it is also unpredictable. Like when you mentioned that you've had some mentors and supervisors who've completely thrown you under the bus, like that's in the word mentor, like that is not part of the situation at all. And to think that some people are still allowed to have positions in their job to be able to do this and to exert this control without any sort of repercussions is just is just so wild to me. And to think that mentorship isn't even something that is considered when they go up for tenure or when they are considered for the job, it's just completely put to the back burner so people don't take it seriously. And of course, there are those fantastic mentors who go out of their way to make sure that you are feeling comfortable and that you are um, taken under their wing and told all the things that you want to be told and are given all these research opportunities. But sadly, that doesn't seem to be built into a mentor, uh, quote unquote. So it's just, it's, it's so, it's, yeah, I have no words for how clinical psychology, um, and I'm sure maybe other parts of psychology as well, are just not oriented in this sort of way of making sure that it's collaborative and making sure that you're, t you're helping people rather than actually putting obstacles in someone's way to prevent them from doing something that they love and are passionate about and will move the field forward. Yeah, and on that note, I will add that my impression um, is the field of psychology in general, um, and maybe academia, especially in Stan Bradley, rewards scientists as opposed to people who are good mentors. I mean, it's great that you, if you find a scientist who's also a great mentor, but my impression is that generally that's not as common as we might expect. A lot of people say, think that, oh, you, you seem to be doing fairly well, but yeah, I've gotten a lot of help. I've gotten a lot of help from undergrad. A lot of that component is luck. You know, like I landed in a lab where my PI is fairly supportive and my PI respects me and treats me, you know, fairly equally and is able to offer constructive advice most of the time. And I think that's, you know, I thought this was expected. I thought this would be the norm when really maybe it's not. Another question that I was going to ask is how has it been then running your podcast so far? Have you been met with any pushback on the things that you've been saying or has it been a very supportive community? And I know that on Twitter, it's a very great bubble of people who are seeming willing to support it and to provide all these incredible resources to people, especially on academic Twitter. But I wonder how reflective that is of the real <laughs> academic sphere. So yeah, if you could comment on that. Yeah. So you know what? I have been met with open arms, truly. I very much lucked out in that I had a few really early listeners who have just like supported me and shared the podcast with all their friends. I had, you know, before I even had my first episode out, I started my Twitter account and I had professors DMing me and saying like, I can't wait. This is so needed. And I have people, I had someone today, like, thank me and send me a DM and, and say, like, I really appreciate this. And I truly thought that my podcast was going to be me shouting into the void about problems that nobody cared about and, like, no one was interested in. And to have built this, this like, amazing audience that I have who are incredibly kind and, you know, reach out to each other. It, it's so wonderful. And part of that is 
uh, tapping into the like psyching out community on Twitter. This is, uh, if you're on academic Twitter and you like psychology, definitely give them uh, a follow or check them out because that's really where these kind of passionate young psychology uh, cool people, I guess, congregate to talk about these things. Um, Cause I could have ended up with, you know, the type of people who are on like grad cafe. I don't know if you guys heard of grad yes. cafe, but it's, yeah, it's this website where people, you know, talk about their applications and it can be very toxic and uh, people kind of biting each other down and, and really kind of negative energy, but, but no, it's been, it's been awesome. And I am getting to meet really cool people, obviously like you guys um, as well, you know, uh, professors who, I probably would have never had the chance to talk to Dr. Craig Rodriguez Sejas, uh, who is like a, a beam of light, uh, just just amazing, as well as as many others, um, and students who you know will tell me like I got in, and like I'm just so I'm so I feel like like a like a mother, <laughs> I'm like yes, like you go girl, like get that, and um, and yeah, so I I really lucked out. Um, I, in the, in the beginning, I was wondering if there was going to be any pushback and that's why I do use a pseudonym on the podcast of Cass. Uh, and honestly, that's just to keep it like as honest as I could while applying and not wanting to <laughs> get my, myself in too much trouble for talking about the nitty gritty of, of site. Yeah, I, I am so lucky. And this podcast helped me in so many ways feel less alone and have you know a little bit more I guess self-esteem and confidence in myself as an applicant that people would even want to listen to what I have to say so yeah no seriously I think Ike and I both really applaud you for doing this and for like noticing that there is such a lack of community in this space where there should be so much discussion about the norms and the things not to do and their expectations and just to make sure that people aren't in stuck in cycles of abuse or stuck in a sort of um, feeling that they're not worthy or that they are, don't belong in this certain area because these imposter syndromes and feelings are so prevalent and even in grad school it's going to I feel like just stay with you for so long but seeing other people fail or not succeed or be honest about their journey is so important because otherwise we're just seeing people's best days on Twitter and that's not the reality and it's just going to make us feel even less confident about ourselves but knowing the full story can really just make people hopeful and understand that there are people out there who are really willing to help and really willing to like put push you up because that also pushes them up in a way um so yeah it's such an amazing podcast and you've helped so many people through the application process and honestly if you do not get in this year i am protesting because this is ridiculous <laughs> because you've helped an enormous amount of people get in i hate that so much and like every time i hear somebody say that you helped me like i'm overjoyed because you know if i could be one person the podcast is worth it right doing all of all of that is is so worth it and yeah, I mean, I'll keep you guys updated. I promise. Uh, you can follow me at Pod Psyched on Twitter if you want to know if I get in or not. And uh, 
I am definitely planning on, even if I do get in, talking about kind of expectation versus reality in my first couple of years at university and just interviewing more cool people. And, uh, and yeah. Well, thank you so much, Cass, for taking the time to talk about all of your research and all of your experiences and just for putting out such amazing content and for really creating that community. So people, please follow Cass and we will link the podcast uh, and the Twitter account. So seriously, super appreciative and cannot wait to hear about the journey.